Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Eurogamer podcast. I'm Bertie, your host, and every two weeks I find an interesting person from the world of games to talk to. Remember, subscribers to the Eurogamer website get these episodes first, as well as ad-free viewing and exclusive articles. Check the description below for more. Today on the podcast, someone whose name you'll be familiar with if you read Eurogamer, someone who's written some of our biggest reviews in recent years for games like Cyberpunk and Returnal, and someone who now is in charge of all the reviews on the site. They're also someone who was very nearly a professional footballer, more on that later, and is even included as a player in a version of Football Manager. They are, drumroll, Chris Tapsell. Hello. <laughs> Hello. What an intro. Thanks for that. <laughs> You're welcome. I think- I think very nearly is is definitely being as generous as you could be in terms of professional football careers. But in in my head, you <laughs> were it. like the next Peter Schmeichel. I mean, pretty much, yeah. In my head, I was as well. <laughs> I just don't know if I was for everyone else. I hope you're all intrigued <laughs> listening to this. Now we'll we'll come back to this. Um, so, what have I interrupted you doing today? Keepy uppies. Um, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, just just practicing my uh, yeah my goalkeeping skills. No, um, today has been a administrative day of uh, emails and planning and that sort of thing. We've got um, suddenly a very quiet period coming up on the reviews front after probably the busiest Q1 ever, at least since I've been working here. It's definitely been um, big. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a sort of a complete shift of how do we how do we work with the exact opposite of what we just had? Um, so it's all about planning and, and trying to get as far ahead of things as possible now. So how do you work in, in a quiet period? How do you work with that? That is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a combination of things. With On the reviews front, um, it's quite nice because it means that we can spend more time, in theory, looking at smaller games or games that you know people might not have heard of as much. Because naturally you know, in a busy period or most of the year, you're sort of, you know, what you're reviewing is dictated by what people are interested in and, and the biggest games, the ones with the biggest marketing budgets and all of that. Um, and so how much stuff you can look at in between comes down to, you know, just sort of bandwidth of the team, how many people you have, budget, things like that. Um, and just time, just the, the basic element of time. Um, but now, you know, with that opening up, that means looking at smaller games for one, doing being a bit more proactive of what we can go out and search for. I'm always trying to be ahead of it with that. Um, but definitely over the next few months, it's going to be a case of how much can we unearth ourselves. Um, and then thinking about other types of um, articles that we can publish, critical writing, or, you know, do we do a little series or... Do we go back and look at our, our best ofs and that sort of thing? You know, the best games on each platform, things like that. Trying to get creative, basically, is the, is the short answer. Be creative. I really like this period because obviously when things 
when the reviews uh, schedule is or release schedule is busy, it's obvious what you need to do. You need to cover the big, big games, yeah. um, you know, as, as fully as you can. But I like this period when the creativity comes out and you start to get to champion, like you say, some of the smaller games, which people don't know about, which is something that I feel Eurogamer has done quite well in the past and maybe that everywhere can can do better. And it feels really fulfilling uh, letting people know about a game that they may not have heard about before, especially one that's made by a small team as well. You feel like you're really doing that team a service. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those where you don't want to you sort of pat yourself on the back too much for it of like, oh, yes, look at us helping out, you know, those poor little developers. Because there's yeah. only so much influence that you're going to have and, and so much... Um, yeah, impact that that a review can have, especially you know if it's, if it's not positive, not guaranteed to be positive. Sometimes, um, sometimes you try to. There are some some. I mean, I suppose funny now in reflection with some distance where you're trying to almost um, sort of signal boost a game, you know, or signpost it, or just the act of reviewing something is as much about raising awareness of it as it is about criticizing it. Sometimes, with especially with the smaller ones. Um, but it's tricky where you go into something thinking this is a really great looking indie game. I'm really excited to sort of um, sing its praises and evangelize a little bit about a game that I found that doing some really cool things. And then it just doesn't quite come together. <clears throat> and then you're sort of in this position where uh, you have to be delicate in in how you sort of criticize something that you're hoping to yeah, praise. Um, but that's that's reviewing, I guess tricky so <laughs> you officially took over as reviews editor of Eurogamer in December last year I think I think that's right uh yes yeah more or less I think I started doing the job um sort of behind the scenes from maybe October-ish October November I sort of started ramping up and you know one of those things where it takes a while when I think a lot of uh, job changes happened at once it takes a while to sort of everyone to move over so you try and have a bit of a running start um but yeah i guess the, the first official month was probably yeah it would have been it was when ollie left so yeah december what was that first uh official month like was it because i suppose you you'd rolled into it a bit but was there a difference when the first official month took over did it were you suddenly in the deep end how did that feel for, because for people uh, who, are, who are listening to this i suppose and maybe aren't um aware reviews editor is a really key position um, on a publication, particularly one like ours, where reviews have always been an integral, very key component of of, of what we offer. You know, that all now, that's on your shoulders. Not to yeah. put the pressure on. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's fine. I feel plenty of that already. Um, <laughs> You're wearing it uh, well. It was, it was a thank, thanks so much. <laughs> it was... Um, it was fine because I mean December was was relatively quiet, obviously compared to you know, September, September, October, November, which is typically the really busy months. Um, November was a bit of a rush, and it was that tricky thing of sort of juggling, sort of having a half, so one foot in the the next job and one foot still doing you know your responsibilities beforehand. But that was everyone had that issue. That's just the nature of a big shift on a website. Um, and then December, I remember it being a bit quieter and. Um, it's sort of end of year season. So I was thinking about how can we do some kind of end of year critical writing about games that isn't just the best games of the year. Um, so we did that uh, Games Got Away sort of theme week, which is really fun. 
um, which I would like to bring back again this year, actually, although I'm also hoping to miss fewer games. So it's that <laughs> thing of like, it's an admission of, of <laughs> you missing something, but that happens. Um, and uh, it was fun to do that. It was fun to have sort of a celebration of almost like a little sort of reviews festival. I think we published like nine in a week or something ridiculous. So one or two other games actually coming out that needed a review as well. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I think the writers enjoyed it. I th- I th- the feedback was pretty positive from the readers. Um, so it was a nice way to to start actually. And then also, you know, because it's December, it's a bit of a shorter month in terms of how much you're working. So it wasn't too stressful um, before a nice, <laughs> a nice, busy, intense January, February and March. Uh, but yeah, it was good. So talk me through a little bit what it's like to be a reviews editor because there may be people listening to this who go like I, I don't know what that entails like what what are your responsibilities what are you responsible for and what does that actually look like as a, a typical week kind of unfolds um well I, I guess responsibilities wise um it is making sure that we have uh reviews going up in a timely way, just on the basic logistical level or functional level um, that we review all of the big games and as many of the other interesting games as we can. Um, And that involves a lot of scheduling, planning in advance, a lot of working with freelancers um, because the nature of reviews is that they're very uh, sort of time intensive. And so as much as we want to try and keep a lot of stuff in-house because that means you, you get kind of a consistent voice and a bit of a house style. Um, if everyone on the team was reviewing games, you know, if every game that came out in March, say, was reviewed by someone who was full-time on Eurogamer, then we just wouldn't have any actual staff left to write news or features or guides or anything else. Um, so it's a combination of working with freelancers, finding new ones, um, because you always want to be sort of on the, the hunt for new voices and that sort of thing. Um, thinking about the diversity of voices that you have, that you're not being sort of homogenous in any way. Um, cause it's very easy to, to get complacent with that. Um, I guess it's also beyond that about to get a bit sort of uh, not pretentious about it, but idealistic about it. Ideally, you want to be sort of developing <coughs> criticism, developing writers, um, making sure that you're saying interesting things about games um and oh i I suppose adding to the the critical chorus uh, and the conversation around a game because sometimes a way a game is reviewed um can uh i suppose impact the way that developers think about games if if you know you reach sort of a a critical mass of a certain a certain genre for instance right it gets a bit um saturated like battle rails right let's say and at first, you know, it, there's a lot of excitement around that and Battle Rails are really you know, interesting. They're relatively new concept, loads of fun. A load of, sort of copycats spring up and it starts to feel a little bit generic and the ones that aren't adding you know, much new to it. Then naturally the critical voice will sort of turn and be like, okay, well, we need to see a little bit more here than just it's this game with a Battle Royale mode in it. Um, and hopefully that sort of adds to the discussion that developers are having and going, okay, well, you know, we need to think about what we're adding here beyond, you know, following uh, trends and that sort of thing. Uh, obviously, they think about much more than that. But <laughs> <laughs> ideally, we would. Uh, it would be nice to think that that comes under discussion in some way. Um, 
that's a very long answer sorry no no fine we'll come back <laughs> to some of that because there's quite a lot um encased um in that answer is it is it different when a high profile review comes in let's say the ones that typically um attract um, the most sort of attention slash controversy are the first party exclusives. So a game that's exclusive to PlayStation or a game that's exclusive to Xbox. Um, <coughs> is is it different when a game like this comes in? Um, is there more pressure? What is the difference, if any? <coughs> um, yes, I would say there is. Um, you don't want to treat any games differently, obviously. Um, but I... I would say that naturally there's a bit more intensity around the big first party exclusives in particular, you know, Halos, Horizons, God of Wars, those types of games. And then also there are some um, just big games with lots of attention on them, you know, like a Red Dead or something like that. Um, And any kind of series that has like a dedicated fan base, um, there are just, I think there are expectations for games um, that readers might have or that, fans might have um and naturally when people become invested in things um they want it to do well or they want a competitor to not do well um and there's an element of sort of matching your expectations or your hopes for something with the reality of what it is because very rare that a game is the actual thing that you expect it to be in your head um even the most predictable games there's always something a little bit different um, when you actually get to playing them in the hand so um i think yes there is <laughs> long story short there is some pressure with that and it can be difficult and on a more serious level it's about making sure that the people who are reviewing the games are sort of protected when things can get they can get out of hand unfortunately right. that's the nature of video games um in the same way that you know developers can get abuse and that sort of thing so can writers very much so um especially if you're being negative about a first party game. Um, And that's about a combination of um, sort of making sure you have the right person on it, not in terms of to get the type of review that you want, but in terms of um, making sure that they're in a situation where you can protect them. So half the time that just means it's it's more suitable to have someone in-house because we're on staff doing those types of reviews because you know, we're sort of right here with them, either physically or talking to them every day. You know, we're on um, like the company Slack and everything else and email and we're all on social media together. We'll have access to, you know, like the team account and just things like that where you have visibility on this day to day and how someone's doing. Where if someone's freelance, you know, half time, you, it, unless you're really proactively checking, you wouldn't know if someone was receiving a load of abuse on social media and if they didn't come to you and tell you, which they shouldn't have to do, then... Um, you know, you wouldn't be able to check in on them. So it's just about being as thoughtful as possible uh, with those ones and making sure that people feel protected, being present in the comments and guiding discussion, being proactive to make sure that it's positive. It doesn't You don't have to go in there and lay down the law or anything, but it's just about um, sort of stimulating conversation. And that encourages people to talk nicely and they realize that there are human beings here and you, you're listening and you care about what they think and you're not just sort of throwing out some opinion you know with a bit of sass and then disregarding them as much as i would love to do that every now and then <laughs> yeah i think um, it's but yeah tricky i think it's worth reminding people like you said that there there are 
you know people human beings on on the end of this and they put a lot of uh themselves um into those yeah. reviews uh, sometimes it's very easy for people to for whatever reason disagree with the review maybe because it belongs to the the um the platform that they like and therefore they feel offended in some way so they take it out on the reviewer but those you know those messages as much as you can try and ignore them do go through and they do sting uh, yeah so yeah they sure do <laughs> yeah so urge people to think about to think about that so how do you yes how do you find people um for reviews how how do you find uh reviewers and because there may be people listening who who are reviewers how how do you find reviewers um it's a combination of things. Um, so a lot of the time we get people be, you know, sort of proactive and either email me directly or, um, you know, some of the other entities like Christian Donlan, for instance, and Martin, you know, working with Martin before I was here. Um, and there's sort of a pathway of, that I think works relatively well of sort of uh, maybe people writing a few critical uh, writing style features for, Christian Donlan on the feature side of things we work really closely together and obviously he's very very busy critic probably the most for us um and so that's a good way he's incredible at working with newer writers or younger writers and that sort of thing and and um, guiding people very much a mentor for me um and uh yeah it, it ends up as quite a nice on-ramp for people to sort of have a go at writing something critically maybe it's you know a shorter 500 word 800 word piece with him um they do a few of those and he might say hey listen this person's actually really good um because with reviews it's harder to try someone completely new or green um because they have you know very tight deadlines and it, it's hard to delay you can't kind of go okay this is a little bit more work let's have another go at it let's try this move this around that sort of thing um because you might have like five days with a game uh, between getting the game and having to write and publish a review at a set time when everyone else is publishing. And if you miss that, you know, there are implications, not the end of the world, but um, so yeah, generally that's that's the, in my head how I like to do it. Um, but also I try and proactively look at um, obviously other writers out there reading other websites basically and go like, who am I jealous of? <laughs> Ultimately, you know, which sites reviews am I jealous of? Am I going, oh God, I wish we published that review because there are some like that, definitely. Um, and social media, Twitter, that sort of thing. Absolutely. As much as I don't want to be looking at it all day, I am because one, you know, addiction, but two, <laughs> um, it is uh, an incredible way to find new writers because people, you know, post what they're writing and what they're thinking and what they're talking about. So yeah, a mix basically so there's always quite an exciting moment when someone takes a new role um, and they come into it because they come in with their own vision and their own ideas about what that thing can be what that department can be what that um what reviews can be i liken it to moving into a new house and wanting to change everything around uh sort of to suit you or or according to your ideas which is probably a bad um analogy but did you have that feeling? Did you have that vision for changing things? And if so, what is that? Where do you want to take reviews? <laughs> um, I did because, uh, well, I did because naturally I always tend to. Or I, I'm just quite opinionated, which probably <laughs> probably helps being involved in reviews, right? <laughs> but, um, but also I felt that our reviews function 
quite well um and they haven't changed structurally since i've taken over in any major way um i have some ideas obviously if i'd like to do it's been a case of um starting in december and then having the queue on that we've had it's been very much a case of let's just function make sure everything runs smoothly sort of tread water for a few months and, and get through that because it's also a learning experience for me you know as full-time editing for the first time um and then now we're into this period i'm hoping this can be when i can play around with things a bit more and implement a few things um it's difficult because you never want to talk about too much before you've done it because you don't <laughs> know if it will if it will happen um and i sound like a you know evasive developer that i'm trying to interview um <laughs> but um there, there are some things so like just sort of visually i would like them to feel like a, a little bit more of an event and so there's been an element of just sprucing them up a bit with pull quotes and how we handle imagery and videos and that sort of thing with them um so far i want to do a little bit more with that um i would like to think about um accessibility a bit more in our reviews it's been a very difficult one to think about how we could implement this because unfortunately on staff we don't have that much expertise on accessibility in the type of depth that you need to do to do it justice mm. um because consistently the point from people who are experts variety on disability or accessibility and that sort of thing for um sites like can i play that um their whole point is sort of you can't half-ass this you, you can't kind yeah. of go oh well you know the the menus are quite good but then you're not talking about uh controller mapping or color blindness or something else there's so many different elements of it it's its own almost its own discipline okay so to have more focus on the games themselves and how accessible they are not yes okay. yes so like, like like the sort of holistic i guess that the argument is it's, it's a holistic thing right thinking about accessibility and design so it's for us it's been a case of how can i bring that into our reviews in a way without having to do an entirely separate accessibility review which just isn't going to be feasible with limitations on code and all these boring things behind the scenes um but that also isn't going to be so light touch that it actually defeats the point mm. of it and would suggest that we're just ignoring the actual advice from people which is that you have to think of the big picture um that's definitely something i want to do though um the other is obviously thinking about um the diversity of our writers and making sure that i think we've been quite good with that in terms of reviews i still think we can do better um on staff we aren't very diverse but our freelance pool is incredibly diverse across not just sort of um you know visual things race ethnicity but um uh sort of gender identities or, or uh accessibility and that sort of thing um which i think is very important because it brings a diversity of thought not just in terms of um you know your direct background but life experiences that comes into mm. reviews and writing um finding new writers is a big part of that um a combination of building towards diversity but also just i think it's nice to refresh every now and then and bring some people in there have been some amazing new writers come through recently um and then obviously the very important one which is moving to a, a ten thousand point scale so every game is ranked out of <laughs> it's ten point zero 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 for each game the scores um, the endless score debate yes yeah <laughs> uh, which goes on um, internally i should say as as much as uh, it maybe goes on externally yeah doesn't it just <laughs> um what about more broadly what about this idea of what you think someone wants from a review because 
there are so many places where you can get a quick snapshot glimpse at maybe the perceived quality of a game you know a site like metacritic um you know takes an average from what um, people um around the web are saying or there are god knows how many influencers um telling their huge audiences you know what they think um of a game and perhaps not as critically as a review might on our site so what you know what should a review be for someone because it, it is it just a buying guide or or is it something more oh that's tough um it, it's tough because i have these conversations myself with myself when i'm writing sometimes and then also with writers and with other editors and you know we have different opinions on the team let alone amongst our audience or the wider audience that you know might only pop in and read your game right now and then um I think it's fairly obvious that I think that the days of sort of buyer's guide reviews are are gone um, and we're better for that. Um, there's an element of uh, that always being important, like an, an element of information. I see it as like the that sort of BBC mantra. Um, I think it's like inform, um, educate, entertain, something like that. Um, I think there's an element... <laughs> <laughs> this is it's probably well out of date showing some answer. um i think it's something along those lines of like there should be an element of us obviously you you trying to capture what a game is um and in doing that you can often tap into some more insightful criticism than just sort of i liked this i didn't like this um and so when i'm talking to someone who's already got a good foundation of critical writing what i'll be thinking about is trying to say okay capable of analyzing you know what works and what doesn't but how can you then sort of put that into a big picture idea of what the game's kind of essence is which is such a you know silly way of saying it but <laughs> it's a very serious way of thinking about it but but especially for bigger games or or more remarkable games i think that's a really helpful way to think about trying to get to a, a more um, elaborate way of reviewing games or a more in, insightful way of talking about them is thinking about what what actually is this game beyond just you know its surface what is sort of the spirit of what's going on here what are they trying to do what what's its personality um, and you can often kind of get to critical writing through descriptive writing by doing that um, you can you can describe critically like I remember seeing a, a, a review editor somewhere else that will say yeah, you know, whenever I get some copy in, if if there's a paragraph where it's just description, then I'll tell them to change that and put criticism in there because you're not just explaining what it is; you want to describe it. Uh, you want to you know criticize it. It's a review. Is that good or bad? Whereas I think that you can have just a descriptive paragraph. You can have just a descriptive review, just you know a thousand words of just description, and that can criticize a game positively or negatively, um, just by how you use those words. Um, so that's what I would say. I hope that reviews can be in terms of the the sort of style of them and what we're trying to achieve with reviews um i don't want them to be functional um, functional yes i don't and, and i don't want them to be uh like reviews for everyone i think there are lots of reviews that are kind of like this is a review that anyone can read and enjoy i quite like the idea that um these are reviews that you know might it might provoke you or or annoy you or, or stimulate you or, or cause you to react in some way and that's not to be deliberately provocative but it's just a 
reading is like a two it's a two-way thing you know you the reader has sort of a responsibility as well to engage with it and to reflect on what's being said um and to sort of bring their own bring their own interpretation to what they're reading just as we're bringing our interpretation to the games it's sort of that three stages of um sort of refraction through <laughs> through people um that i think is that's when it gets really interesting and you get comments where it's like oh i don't know they, they pick up on someone's review that the reviewer themselves hadn't thought of when they were writing it um i think that's like the magic is in that um i really have issue the other thing you mentioned was metacritic right i, I really i really have issues there and i struggle with it because i think that it is fundamentally a useful tool for people to get an at a glance look at you know what they think of a game but just very briefly it's good to know what's the critical reception i want to know this mm. I, I i do this myself you know for a game that I'm not reviewing. I just want to have a quick look and go, all right, what, you know, what do the other sites think? Um, and it's easier to look at a list of sites or a number than it is to go and click through all of them, right? And read thousands of words. Um, the problem is, is when uh, someone might say, re- read a review on Eurogamer and then go, oh, well, this, this seemed broadly negative or you didn't give it a badge or something like that, but it's got a, you know, an 88 or Metacritic. So you're the outlier. And you have all these problems of like, well, Metacritic doesn't count all of the ones that don't put badges on it, uh, don't put scores on it. The ones that don't score on it tend to review in a more similar way to us. So if you look at those ones, are actually really similar. Um, or there's just the basic fact that that number is made up of a consensus of people and it will have people at the higher end and lower end. Mm. And that's the whole point of a number, right? It wouldn't be an average if all the numbers were the same. It would just be a number. So it's, I, I go around in circles with these things. I, you know, I want scores because I want people to be able to get an idea of what we're saying. I like the drama of an essential or an avoid and that sort of thing. I also um, loathe them with every <laughs> every fibre of my being when, <laughs> when, when uh, you know, it's so easy to be reductionist about it. So, oh, yeah, I could go on forever. <laughs> A difficult topic. Where do you... Yes. You, you mentioned, you know, you've read some things from, um, from what other uh, reviews ed- editors have said. And I know that you read um, the internet quite broadly in terms of, critical writing um about things that i guess we'll come on to um a bit later but where do you draw inspiration from in terms of critical writing or maybe just writing in general are there publications out there doing reviews or these kind of things in games or otherwise that you that you really like that inspire you oh man um there are definitely um it's a really weird mix of things you're right it, it is a mix of different parts of the internet that i i take inspiration from um i guess um i would say that i enjoy if we're talking about things that aren't games for example i would say that i enjoy uh, a lot of film writers so priscilla page is a fantastic film writer she does i think she has a patreon and then she does some stuff for um a couple of websites as well um she's excellent uh, she is very good at that type of uh, sort of um, interpretive writing. So she'll take very specific examples from a film, say like a Scorsese movie, and talk about you know um, themes of religion in uh, across different films and you know sort of things that match up. That kind of that like video essay stuff that you know you love from YouTube. That's um, just in a, in a text format, basically. Um, I think that the every frame of painting series on YouTube that stopped years ago now, but I just completely fell in love with that. Um, I think it was um, Tony Zhu who did it. Um, okay. Sorry if I've got, if I've got that wrong. Um, 
that's exceptional in terms of just breaking things down in terms of common themes or why things work and they don't. I, I really um, put a lot of weight on specificity in reviews. So it, talking about if you say something is good, then you need to be able to say why it's mm. good and specifically what it is about it, you know, and, and what works. Um, talking about technique and that sort of thing. So um, I think it's Matt Zolosites, um is a, a fantastic film critic who writes for rogerebert.com, I think, and a few other websites. Um, and he talks about this quite a lot, just the importance of talking about technique. Um, in his case, it's with the films, but I think games, there are, if anything, more techniques that you can bring in because there's just such a breadth of mechanics mm. and things that are going on. That's the brilliance of them. Um, so talking about the whys, uh, very much so. Um, I love um, Bardi Rone, who is a football writer for The Guardian. Um, I'm a big football fan, obviously. And uh, I just think he's just got a sensational way of words. He's, he's incredible at um, metaphor, um, or I guess it's technically a uh, simile, where he will describe someone as like something. Um, and whenever he writes about the best players in the world, like Lionel Messi and that sort of thing, it's just it's a delight because um, you feel like it's the best the best possible football writer writing about the best possible footballer and you <laughs> just get sort of magic. Um, final big one, food writing, which is uh, Jonathan Gold is obviously the the peak. Um, I also think Jay Rayner is great when he's, um, he's great when he's righteously angry about something, which you <laughs> can be every now and then with a game. I don't like being critical, sort of harshly critical, unless it is, it's, there's an element of like injustice there as well. Um, he's incredible at that. But um, yeah, Jonathan Gold is the real idol because he's, it's that descriptive writing thing of um, he uses uh, the second person famously. So he'll say, you know, you bite into the falafel and you taste X, Y, Z. I mean, in a lot more artfully than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he, he, I think that food writing is great because it's about trying to describe something that is almost impossible to describe like how do you describe a taste you just kind of start describing it as other things so you kind of go oh well it's it's salty and it tastes like i don't know marmite <laughs> right but it but you're just describing you're using one thing to describe another thing and you're still kind of going okay well what does marmite taste like and you're always chasing the actual flavor and it's a similar thing with games of what it feels like to play a game is often very difficult to describe without either using the same adjectives over and over or describing it as it like oh this game right crossed with this game and you get that game um so he was a real master of writing about flavor in sort of interesting um exciting ways again fantastic turn of phrase for that um and it, it's just one of those things where just reading it regularly is just a good way to remind yourself of how you can write quite casually and quite easily about things that are very difficult to write about by just sort of um, enjoying herself <laughs> and flowing because he, he feels like a writer who's enjoying himself as he writes. Um, I think that's I think that's probably that's probably the most of it. Um, those are some, but yeah, like you say, it's a broad thing. Those are some good inspirations. So now I want to just go back in time a little bit, and I want to find out a bit how you got here because I I like seeing the things that kind of shaped a person. Um, shaped their interests so take me back to to little chris with snot dribbling down his lip <laughs> maybe um what was yeah. what was life like then and what did you want to be back then when when you grew up oh man um 
I wanted to be a million different things. Okay. Um, so I, I, the main one is I, I did want to be a footballer, which is really ridiculous when you say it out loud. But um, I thought I was all right. <laughs> um, so, I had a sort of you know. So let's talk about one. this um, because you do you do yeah. have um, quite. <laughs> A serious um, footballing career. So you're a goalkeeper, right? Because you're no good in the other positions. I, I mean, um, no. no, but you're, <laughs> uh, you're a goalkeeper. It's not even a joke. You're just right. <laughs> so, you know, I played football um, as a kid, but, but obviously not, well, not obviously, but not to the degree um, that you did. So, but when did it start getting serious for you? And what did I suppose serious look like? Um, probably about age 13 something like that um which was obviously playing a lot at school and doing really well and then playing sunday league because i really enjoyed it um and uh again we're doing well and you get kind of just nice praise from from um coaches and that sort of thing and it's this weird question of how seriously do i take that how much do you trust their judgment when someone's like oh he's gonna go all the way and you're like well, okay you're just a random bloke um <laughs> So it takes <laughs> it sort of takes time to get a sense of where you actually are in terms of uh, quality, especially as a kid. You know, because kids grow at different and develop, as you would say in the football world, at different rates and ages and that sort of thing. But I feel like I was doing all right. I was quite tall for my age, um, and I'm no longer tall for my <laughs> age. Five <laughs> eleven. That's a main reason I think why. Five hey, eleven is a super height. You know, so it, are you? I am five eleven. Five eleven. Short kings rise up and all that. <laughs> <laughs> um, not short kings, above average height short kings. I have yeah, to well, quite. Um, Call it a six foot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you just round up, don't you? Anyway, um, <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, I suppose I hit sort of 13, that sort of age, and I started training at academies or like a, they call them sort of development centers, which is like a, a training group before the academy. It's like one down from academies. Um, where you train with other goalkeepers and you get an idea of what sort of standard you're at and then they sort of feed into academies in the local area or that maybe they're sponsored by or funded by or that sort of thing um, and then so from there I, I was probably at one of them for at least two years probably between sort of 12 and 14 and then I had my first trial was at Charlton Athletic and then um, then one at Brighton um, and I was ill for part of that I think um and so stopped and then came back sort of half a season later or something like that so i sort of had one and a half two trials at brighton um uh one at fulham um i remember that one because uh i didn't get in there because the england under 16s goalkeeper was in the year below me i think <sighs> and and so i was like well I'm there's they were like we don't need nightmare you should have sabotaged him yeah I know just a quick tied his shoelaces together trim this foot oh I've broken it um and then Portsmouth as well after that when I was a bit older um and always sort of uh you know right on the edge of it one little thing that oh well it would have been for this would have been for that and it's that difficult thing of never knowing how much to how much of it is just quality ultimately if you have a lot of trials and you don't get in there's obviously an element of just pure skill involved right but um also things like height or okay we've got this guy i think at charlton they were they flew in a goalkeeper from america at my age group who was also on trial and they were like well we're having this guy so don't need you brighton they had um a goalkeeper who was 
we were to say we were similar standard and he was like six foot three at like 14 <laughs> so like don't need you um justify justifiably portsmouth they had a guy come in from south america um and uh yeah fulham obviously had the, the england guy so i just just you know wrong wrong place at wrong time sort of thing um and then i had uh quite a bad injury of my shoulder i dislocated it and ended up dislocating it about six times wow. before i had surgery um and then i took 12 months to come back from surgery um or sort of 10 you know plus a bit of pre-season and then i think like my second game back when i was oh, i was having the, the form of my life we went we went on a, a the school was incredible at football we were like sort of you know getting towards the latter end of the national cup kind of standard and we played against academies we went to valencia and played against the valencia under 16s when we were under 18s um and drew to wow all. um and i remember having like genuinely having a really good game not just saying that <laughs> um and the referee comes up and it in spanish and he's like oh like casillas and i'm like yeah <laughs> yeah sure yeah 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 that's me and then um came back played against qpr um there under 16s when raheem sterling was there wow um who was like it was like a, it was like a, a met against boys with him it was hilarious he was like the smallest guy on the pitch and yet was running rings around everyone um and i think we lost that and i remember um coach comes up and is like oh yeah we're interested in told our coach this he then told this to me yeah we're interested in signing a goalkeeper um uh but he might be like a a month too old sort of in the wrong age group and then next game um as i was hoping to try and get a trial there sort of last chance and then did my shoulder oh. again um and that was when I thought, okay, I should probably go and do What was that? Else. Like that must have been <laughs> you know, you joke about it now, but that must have been quite hard at the time. Yeah, well, oh yeah. I mean at this point, very much over it, or I like to think that I'm over it, but um obviously at that age, very I was a very emotional teenager anyway. I still and, am, Chris. Uh, I still very, am. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean I try to act like I'm not, but I am. Um but <laughs> but um yeah, obviously I took that pretty hard because it felt like a sort of a committed, I committed a lot of, of childhood to that. A lot of out of hours stuff. You know, I, I, um, a lot of weekends were spent playing football. I played football. I had a match on a Wednesday, a Saturday and a Sunday. Wow. And I trained at school on uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays and at academies on trials on um, often three weekdays as well so i think there was a point where i was doing something like 25 or 26 hours a week of football wow. on top of school so you went from that to um, nothing to nothing wow okay. and so it was just a case of of you know you feel that that for me felt like just a big chunk of life sort of uh gone um and you know i got back to it and i played a bit at uni and had fun and and that sort of thing and i play a bit now very occasionally and stuff i've got to a point now where i can enjoy it whilst being a rubbish standard which i struggled with um because when you treat something like it's a profession mm. and then you go to just treating it like fun it's really hard to not take it too seriously and, and then get down on yourself when you make mistakes and it's like well you're making mistakes you're not taking it seriously <laughs> um <laughs> it's weird insight into my brain um but uh yeah it was it was difficult but then you know it opened up other things i, I had a great time at university i wanted to do something completely different i wanted to be a lawyer when right I so you did philosophy, philosophy. yeah yeah that's quite uh, different to on football. converting to yeah i know right <laughs> um well, i quite i quite liked academics and i you know 
did well on that front. Um, and so it was a case of like, okay, well, it's time to get serious about careers and stuff that isn't football, basically. So in a way, the timing was right. It was just enough time for me to refocus and correct some terrible grades that were sinking whilst I was trying to do football. And then, um, yeah, to, I, I did well academically, um, planned on, on going to law, tried that out, <laughs> um, found it really boring, <laughs> which is so, I mean, the, like very important point to make is that I can, I, I can afford to do that because of privilege, right? Like I went to a good school, I've got family that support me and that sort of thing. And that's, you can only kind of get to a point where you're having work experience at a law firm and go, nah, it's a bit boring. If you are incredibly lucky in your upbringing where you don't feel worried that, um, you know, you won't be able to, to go into a job where you, you can earn comfortably and that sort of mm. thing. Um, so, uh, I'm very much aware, very much aware of the privilege of being able to kind of turn my nose up at something like that. I'm not saying I would have been able to do it. I didn't. I never did the degree or got the qualifications or something. It might have just failed at that. But um, yeah, found it wasn't for me. Basically, then I decided I wanted to have a go at filmmaking because I really enjoyed it, and there was a great film society at UCL where Christopher Nolan went and sort of worked in the society, and Emma Thomas, I think, is. Um, his wife and a big producer in Hollywood went as well and wow. that sort of thing. Um, so I, I did that, made some terrible, terrible short films that were only terrible because of me. Everything else, <laughs> all the like the, the cinematography and the editing and the music and the acting, superb. The directing, the writing, <laughs> absolutely abysmal. <laughs> um, but good good lessons. I did some like uh, some running on some shoots and that sort of thing, which was really fun. Um and thought quite seriously about that and that was god this is such a long story sorry this is literally a life story um, this is good and so exactly I, what this is I'm, I'm just great material um so I, I moved back home uh after uni i got a part-time job and um at the cinema and in my spare time uh tried writing short films that sort of thing and doing some running on the side to get some experience on sets and um hit a brick wall going actually I don't think I'm very good at this and I think this is quite a stupid way to try and make a career just just making films from scratch rather than um you know trying to get like funding for shorts and stuff like that rather than going up the sort of professional ladder of it or film school and stuff so I thought okay I better get a day job what do I like that I enjoy that isn't going to completely consume my life I like video games um and so that's when I started writing for a little site for free to build up a portfolio, which I did for about a year. Um, and then got to a point where I thought I really should be getting paid now. Um, so, <laughs> so I left and planned on having a go at freelance. And then this job came up at Eurogamer, which was the guide writer job. Um, and it was right, it, just incredible coincidence of timing of right when I was moving out of my parents' place. I wanted to go to Brighton. Brighton's my hometown. Brighton is the office, Eurogamer's main office. I wanted to move in with my partner. She wanted to live in Brighton um, and managed to get the job. So just a co incredible coincidence of of um, things falling in place at the same time. So again, a lot of privilege and luck and just everything coming together. I never realised that we got you at that kind of intersection where you'd be yeah. trying something and, and you'd just kind of, well, not just, you'd been doing it for a year, but you'd kind of pivoted. And now in, in yeah. a few short years, you know, you've become a uh, reviews editor, which is kind of incredible. 
Um, well, six years. <laughs> well, let's call it six. It's all. It's all no. Five it's all half, no yeah. time to me. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It feels like it feels like no time. Um, it, it it's just flown by. Um, and I've just, I really love it. Um, I, I just uh, I get a huge amount out of it, and I think that um, I probably wouldn't put as much into it if I wasn't really enjoying it. Um, so yeah, it, it was just very very lucky everything lining up. Um, and I've enjoyed what I've liked is that it's been, each of the roles that I've had here so far has been really different. Um, so. You know, guide, writing guides is really different to writing features and then writing reviews and, and editing and that sort of thing. Um, so I've just been very lucky to be able to almost have a little tour of the site by working in different, working my way through different sort of departments. Um, it's been very good. So guides writing, um, I, I just wanted to ask you quickly about this because guides writing is something that um, is everywhere across games writing now it's it's something that actually holds up a lot of uh gaming publications and and, and brings in this kind of constant significant uh traffic which allows a lot of these sites to exist um and then focus on um some of the bigger pieces or the more prestige um pieces that they do and of course it offers people potentially a door into uh into the games industry um what would you would you encourage people younger writers uh to look for guides positions and go in that way what what you know what are your thoughts on guides i suppose um i would definitely in terms of just getting experience working professionally getting paid for your work it's a great way to get a start of that and then you you learn to work with editors and you make connections and you get access to games and you can then you know you you're likely going to be one of the priorities for getting code for uh, a game right to be able to play ahead and launch to write guides and then you have access to that code and if you're freelance then you can you've got a whole game that you've played through for guides you know you can then go pitch features to for another website or the same website and sort of um get sort of twice the the bang for your buck i suppose right um so on a practical level it's really good it also um teaches you a lot in terms of being very clear and very concise and very precise as well with how you're explaining things because sometimes it can be really technical and you will know if you make a mistake because someone will be in there within seconds telling you <laughs> you've made a mistake either on social media or that doesn't sound like the internet to me i know i know um god the emails i've had about some minuscule error um not that i ever make errors but, <laughs> same um yeah no no none, none of us know um uh, and and it is good fun. It's it's a very good learning experience. It's very good at like uh, being able to learn to be able to turn things around with a lot of time pressure. Those are very good marketable skills that you should think about in terms of putting straight on your CV um, after you've done it for a couple of years or even just a year really. Um, at the same time, there are downsides to it that I think people should be aware of, which is that it can be really intense and. Um, generally because it's an entry-level position it's not going to pay as well um, and or if you're doing freelance freelance maybe it pays better but in terms of time I don't know um, so there, there are things to balance there and I, I see a lot of young uh, guys writers um, who you know if you get sort of stuck in that position and you're not able to, to transition through a website um, like I was um, then you do see people kind of moving on out of the industry after that because they go, you know what, I've done this for three or four years. 
and it's really intense and the hours are a bit longer and the turnarounds are faster and you just sort of right into your fingers bleed and that, that can be you know quite tough um and you know occasionally repetitive and that sort of thing so there there are downsides to it definitely but it's very rewarding because you're often doing the biggest traffic out of everyone and you know you're by by dint of that being the most well-read of you know journalists um like the most successful the most read journalists in uk games journalism are guide writers um and uh that's just quite a cool thing. And also you get some, every now and then talk about emails. We've got some really nice emails from like some kid's mum who was stuck on uh, a certain part of Pokemon, um, like a puzzle or something. And they finally found our page and their little Johnny got through the, <laughs> got through the puzzle and they're just so grateful for it. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Things like that. We get these gushing emails every now and then, which is really nice. Um, so it is very rewarding, but very challenging. Um, so just be aware of the challenge if you are going to go in via that route is what I would say. Nice, lovely advice. Um, and speaking of games, we didn't really touch on this um, in the you being younger phase, but which are the games, when do games come into your life? And and, and as you get older, which are the games that, that kind of shape you? Which are these special games in your life? Oh, man. Um first games that i played um definitely pokemon um that was from super young age like borrow my dad's game boy you know <laughs> pokemon the original game boy the proper brick um so so borrowing that and playing pokemon playing tetris and um like one of the one of the early game boy mario games i can't remember which one um and then uh we had a playstation the first playstation so um, rather than a Nintendo, so I played um, random stuff like Tekken, and I can't remember which one it was. Probably two or three. I'm going to say if it was back then. Um, and Crash Bandicoot is a massive one. <laughs> like so many British kids, um, Crash is the like 90s kids. Crash is very much the ubiquitous entry point for gaming. Um, I just love that. I used to play Crash Team Racing with my mum and dad. Um, which is one of the only games I could ever play with them and also play that kind of pass the pad thing with, with Crash where you know my dad like yelling at the TV every time he gets to run over <laughs> by a boulder or something. Which is were, they, were they good at games? Were yeah. they generally interested in games? They were all right. They were they were kind of into it. Like I used to play a few, especially my mum, like I played like um, Point Blank, that light gun game on the PlayStation, if you ever played that. Um, I used to play that with nice. her, which was really funny. Um, and then they had a period where they played a Worms game on the PS2 that was like a um it was almost like Tetris where there's like water at the bottom. I think it's called Worms Blast, right? And that you're one of the worms sitting in a dinghy, you have like a rocket launcher and you're trying you need to shoot <laughs> up and hit with like a corresponding colour to the blocks oh. you're hitting and then it like blows up all the ones it's connected to. And it sort of rate if you you can get sort of combos and it raises the other person up and you get squished into the blocks or raising and lowering a water level and that sort of thing. And they played that, I mean but every spare minute of the day that they had, it was. How like, old were you at this point? I was like, I was like fourteen, okay. so it was that age where you get really, you're like, oh god, my mum and dad playing games again. You can hear them like yelling in the other room. Um, That's great. <laughs> which I, I, I truly think that was like the closest they ever were in their marriage was when they were playing that game together, and they played it until the PS2 like broke. Wow. Um, 
So <laughs> yeah, the, the disc was all scratched and God, it was incredible. Um, but yeah, I guess I had a bit of a, probably a, a lapse, like a minor lapse in sort of early teens again with like football and that sort of thing. I just only had so much time for it, but I, I always played the Elder Scrolls games like Oblivion and Skyrim, okay. obviously. Um, strategy games on my laptop I played a lot of, so like Dawn of War, Total War, that sort of thing. Um, football Manager I've played for <laughs> over a decade now. <laughs> And you're um, in one of the games. I said I'd come back to. This. I'm in one of them. I'm in Which, one of and them. You've I've written a piece I think it's about 2009 this. 2009 or 10. Yeah, a uh, very self-indulgent piece about myself, basically. That's um, my favourite kind of piece. A bit like therapy. Okay. <laughs> um, it was really fun writing it because it, it, talking to like the guy who was in charge of the scouting and that sort of thing and how that works and how they do your ratings and stuff. It was just really fun. Very self-indulgent, but very fun. Um, what else? What else was a big defining game? Oh, I loved like Star Wars games. I, was well I know Star one. Wars as a kid, so I played a lot of like um, you Le- do, League yeah, of Legends. You do know Star Wars games. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I tried to forget about League of Legends, <laughs> even though it's the game that I played the most and that I still play the most. I almost don't see it as a video game. It's one of those where it's like I didn't realize you were still uh, playing it. Unfortunately, I am still playing it. I'm sorry. So how much? Because I remember you saying you were quite into um, League of Legends, and I've seen a bit of your competitive yeah. spirit come out while playing um, Overwatch, which we were collectively into for a little while. But oh my god, yeah. So how into? Yes. Are you going to ask me how? Yeah, how toxic am I? Uh, yeah, how into League of Legends? <laughs> no, I'm are not, you? not very. Or um, were you perhaps? It depends. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a phase like when you're at uni and you've got a lot of spare time. Um, very, very into League of Legends. Um, whereas now it's like, I really just go through phases. Like there are times where you, like I might play like 10 games in a week and there are times when I might not play it for like a month. Um, it just depends on what's going on um, and how in, in the good books I am with my partner. <laughs> Because it's you know, like I don't think anyone has ever looked attractive whilst playing League of Legends. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Sort of like hunched over your desk, like yelling at your mates, um, and um, so yeah, it depends how popular I am at home. If I've got enough, you know, um, credit in the bank, then, then I can be a goblin and play long for a bit. But <laughs> if not, if not, then I don't. Um, but yeah, I still, I, I went, there was a couple of years where I just didn't play it at all. And I was so glad to have that out of my system and it's wormed its way back in. Um, but I just love it. I love that. I love that it, it feels like sports, right? It's the same as like playing five a side. It's very tactical, very strategic. I love strategy. I love action. Um, and I love competitiveness. So it's like that combination of everything. And also the a game is just designed to be like, you know, crack in the way that it is. That you, know, you level up like eighteen times every game. Your your money's popping out of stuff that you kill, and it you're buying items which make you more powerful. It's amazing at doing that kind of RPG thing of tickling that bit of your brain that um, you know with numbers going up and that sort of thing that makes you feel good. Um, and that makes the the highs higher and the lows much <laughs> lower. <laughs> um, I've been talking to you forever, so um, we're, we're kind of coming to, um, to to the end of our chat, and, and, and thank you very much um, for doing this and taking time out of your um, very busy schedule uh, to talk to me. Um, but before you go, um, I've got three questions which I, I ask everybody, uh, and two of them are easy, oh, one of them's a bit harder, and we've sort of just been talking about it a bit. But um, So the first of these is, first game so what was your first game 
It could be your first significant game or it could be um, your very first. It's uh, it's probably Pokemon. Pokemon Red is what I would say, um, which is simultaneously the most significant game by far because I've played every game in that series and I adore it. And also the first. Okay. <laughs> uh, sorry if you want something longer. <laughs> I've been talking so much. I don't That's perfect. Um, what was the last game that <laughs> you played? Last game that I played um, was Norco, which I just reviewed, um, went up the other day. And I've not played a game since for three whole days, which has been really nice. <laughs> sorry, video games, but it's nice to have a little break. Even when you do a lot of reviews in a row. Um, that game is incredible. I love it. I almost wish I had gushed about it a bit more and given it an essential, but you're not supposed to say that. But I have this feeling um, about quite a lot of yeah. games I've played and reviewed. Um, yeah. Right? You, you do though, like you just do. Like it, I yeah. Well, I mean, we have these conversations, right? But but it's so hard, isn't it? It's it's really difficult because you you have to make a call, yeah. and sometimes the line is so yeah, um, almost invisible between it being uh, you know a recommended or essential. But then you get up to the whole you know review scores thing where you're like, well, you know, a label makes so much yep. difference I, to the the developer or the people reading it. But you're like in your head, yeah. it's maybe the same it's it it can yeah, be really absolutely. tricky and in hindsight sometimes i've thought i i should have put essential on that it, and but then it's only sometimes with perspective yeah. that you realize yes yeah it's um i mean you know hindsight 2020 and all that i know it's a cliche but it is with games especially and also because you know you're in the dark when you're writing it and then a load of other reviews come out and if you were right on the board line and then everyone else you know gave it a 10 or whatever and you're going oh man I, you know i wouldn't have stuck out if i had to give it an essential maybe i should have just gone all in and then you question yourself but that's what makes it your review and not someone else's review and it um ultimately that's i think there's that but if it fits with the, the text and what you've written then that's the point i think i'd say to people be brave yes absolutely which is be honest. That's how you it's like be honest with how you feel about it. That's all you can ask for someone who's writing a review, right? And that is being brave. Is sort of going like, if you don't like it, you don't like it, or if you love it, you love it. Be be unashamed of that. Yeah, is what I would say. Like like you're you're absolutely right. Uh, but it's a difficult thing to be. Um, mm. Okay, so the last question um, is best game, um, and this is probably favorite game. God, I find this so tough. Um, it's an impossible question, really, but shh, don't tell anyone that. Yeah. C can I can I tell you what I, what I would want to narrow it yeah. down from? Like, can I give you the a few? Right, okay. So one would be FTL, which wow. I have like a poster okay. of there um, that Donna gave me very kindly, um, which I just adore. I just am obsessed with that game. I love it. It's one of the few games that isn't one of those kind of really core series that I still just go back to every now and then and just play and get completely lost in. The music is, I think, probably my favorite music of any video game ever in terms of completely capturing something and expanding. It's one of those where it um, it seems so small and simple and it, it can just kind of expand out to feel like a proper universe. I just love it. Uh, FTL, um, Pokemon Gold, which I know is boring because I'm a Pokemon, <laughs> but... I just like, and sort of, you know, gold, silver, crystal, that generation, generation two, I just adore them. I think that was like the archetypal Pokemon game. It, the surprise of being able to go back to the, the original area 
of Kanto is unmatched. Um, a lot of character, a lot of color, watercolor kind of palette of the Game Boy Color is stunning, and it just suits the kind of autumnal um, Japanese games that they're going for. Um, I just, I just adore it. Um, and like Dawn of War, Dawn of War. Uh, which one would it be? I guess like Dark Crusade is the one that has the combination of all of them. Um, I love RTS games, and that again is like kind of a quintessential RTS, really nerdy, just just filthily nerdy <laughs> Warhammer, you know, <laughs> like real real neckbeard stuff. Um, I just love it. I absolutely lap that stuff up. Um, probably missing one, but yeah, one of those three. I, I probably would. Uh, let's say Pokemon Gold, but being honest, it is. Talk about being honest. Be <laughs> Make the call, there Chris. Thank you so much uh, for being on this podcast um, and for spending all this time with me. I'm sorry to kind of cut you off almost. There's there's things I could talk about um, with you for forever, and I'm sure I will, but just not when the uh, the microphone is on. <laughs> no, quite right. Um, sorry to talk quite so much. Not at all. Thank you very much for being here. Um, thank you, everyone else, for listening, if you got this far. And we'll be back in two weeks with someone else fascinating from the world of games to talk to you. Bye for now. Bye.